Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. This is Untangling the Lines, the veterinary anesthetist podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. Lauren. I'm a boarded veterinary anesthesiologist, and today I'm joined by... Hey, my name is Danny. I'm a certified vet tech, and I work in the neurology department. So today we are going to be talking about the brachycephalic dogs. So these are your English bulldogs, Frenchies, pugs, Boston terriers. You can't forget about your cats like the Persians. Right. Is there anyone I'm forgetting? Maybe a boxer thrown in. Yeah. Shih Tzus. Yeah. Japanese chins. Right. Yeah, there's a list. So these dogs all share a common, essentially congenital problem, which is called brachycephalic airway syndrome. And it's a syndrome made up of four major components. That being they have stenotic nares, meaning they have tiny nostrils. They often have elongated soft palates. And so the soft palate kind of extends back and kind of can cover up the general airway and kind of create like an expiratory obstruction to airflow. Also with the laryngeal saccules, these are little kind of outpouchings that are on either side of your larynx. And they kind of, instead of being popped in, they pop out and they also create more turbulence to airflow. And lastly, they share sometimes a hypoplastic trachea, which means that their trachea in general is just smaller for what you would expect mm-hmm. for their body size. So the reason why this is all important is because these anatomical factors can come into play, especially around the times of anesthesia, but even when they're just outside, like running around in the heat or whichever, their anatomy kind of leads them to a greater risk of having an upper airway obstruction, which will then lead them to essentially respiratory arrest, which I think is probably the leading cause of arrest in dogs is typically respiratory versus like a heart attack in a person. In addition, these anatomical factors also create greater air turbulence. So just on, even if they are breathing well, These dogs require more negative pressure to pull the air beyond that long, soft palate and beyond the the saccules and through their tiny little tracheas down to their lungs. So using that high negative pressure to really suck in air is also going to essentially lead to them uh, regurgitating, potentially, and even... um, kind of allowing the stomach itself to slide through the diaphragm, and that's called having a hiatal hernia. And that's another common complication of this scenario. Do you see these breeds become hyperthermic or or hot uh, more often than non-brachycephalic breeds simply because they they can't pass air uh, as easily as other breeds? That sometimes happens. And I find that the more anxious that they are, they can actually work themselves up into a tizzy, making them hotter, more hyperthermic. And that actually drives their metabolism up and increases their their anxiety and the their respiratory rate. And that kind of puts them into a, a risk of like a respiratory distress. Greater risk, right? Yeah. And can actually exaggerate all of these factors. Another potential complication of them being brachycephalic is that these dogs can often have a higher vagal tone. And so, do you know what that means? Uh, Can you explain it a little bit? When you're talking about vagal tone, it's essentially like a seesaw. It's uh, vagal tone is, or the vagus nerve is part of your parasympathetic nervous system that really controls your relaxation, your calming. Think about everyone's enjoying themselves, having a picnic, everyone's eating, very happy and calm. The opposite of that would be the sympathetic nervous system, which is you on your picnic, see a bear, and are now running away from the bear in a mid panic. That's your fight or flight. 
Exactly. And so these dogs tend to have a high vagal tone. So because of that, their heart rate tends to be more slow compared to other dogs. And especially with the drugs that we're giving for anesthesia, we may see more what we call bradyarrhythmias, meaning slow arrhythmias. And that would include an AV block or, or a sinus bradycardia. So what you're saying is that uh, because they have a high vagal tone, that their I guess essentially their rest and their digest system can become exacerbated uh, more often. Essentially, but more so that because they tend to have such a high risk of airway disease, and for some, it's not the correlation is not super well understood, but it seems like dogs with or even any animal with either airway disease or GI disease can have what's called high vagal tone. So they're, when you think of an animal with a really slow heart rate, usually you think of a police dog who's super fit, right? Athletic. Athletic. And they're used to like hiking mountains. Right. And so their resting heart rate can be in the 50s or the 60s. These dogs have low heart rates already, not because they are some fit athlete. Actually, usually they are not fit athletes. But because they have a high vagal tone. Exactly, because of their airway disease. Two other small potential side effects of being brachycephalics is that sometimes they have what I like to call like chonk legs, where their legs are just huge and not super well-defined. So getting IV access can sometimes be a real challenge. And that can be sometimes a real problem because if they are in this moment of, of respiratory distress and they are kind of working themselves into a high risk for respiratory arrest, not having IV access to then give them drugs, calm them down or whichever can actually be a real problem. I will say, I, it seems like in my experience, it's a double-edged sword because, you know, you want to give these dogs sedation in order to remove some of their anxiety to get a catheter in knowing that uh, these dogs, if they become anxious, the repercussions actually are a little bit worse. Potentially, yeah. uh, Because they can't breathe as well. Exactly. And the last feature of these dogs, not that it's really a token of their airway syndrome, but it's just that they tend to have very prominent eyeballs. So because their orbits tend to be a little bit shallower, their eyes are a little bit more prominent or what we call like boopthalmic. Mm -hmm. And because of that, they might be more likely to have corneal ulcers. And if you, let's say you're, they're in dorsal recumbency, they're upside down for a spay or whichever, they re-urge because they're bulldogs. Mm. And then it drips down into their eyes again, That, and especially because their eyes are so much more prominent, they're just even higher risk of corneal ulcers. It's kind of separate from their true problems, but it does, when you think of a Shih Tzu or a Pekingese or something, they tend to have very prominent eyes. I will say, you know, uh, as a, a post-op treatment for a lot of our brachycephalic dogs, uh, lubing the eyeballs is a pretty common treatment to see on the sheets. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we always do it intra-op as well, but staying on top of it, especially if they're under a bear hugger that's just going to be blowing warm air at their face for a prolonged amount of time if they get chilly. Yeah, that's a concern. So before starting an anesthesia for any kind of high-risk patient. I like to create essentially a list of what I call anesthetic goals that will help kind of determine my management strategies and maybe the drugs I pick for that specific patient. So the first thing with these guys is I try to do as much as I can to avoid any nausea or vomiting. So sometimes that's just giving Serenia or Meropitant, which is a great antiemetic, before we get involved with really any drugs at all or as soon as they kind of walk into the door. But I also try to avoid drugs that I know are going to make them nauseous, like morphine 
or even hydromorphone, things like that. I also try to minimize the risk of regurgitation under anesthesia or even before anesthesia. And we try to do that by giving a prokinetic like metoclopramide, which we call Reglin. But we know that that's not 100% because we don't really have a good drug that helps us close the lower esophageal sphincter. And we know that with anesthesia, that sphincter loosens up and then any gastric contents can really start to slide forward into the esophagus. Yeah, it seems like you know, sometimes no matter what we do, uh, you know, no matter how many antiemetics or, or other medications we give to try to prevent uh, regurgs, that sometimes it just inevitably happens. Uh, you know, I, I vividly remember one time we had a Frenchie where, you know, we had Reglan and Serenia on board. And as soon as we, uh, you know, induce with propofol, you can just see the entire back of the throat and the entire larynx just kind of filling up with with fluid and with regurg. So I think as a, a technician, you have to be prepared for these things potentially happening. To me, that means setting up suction uh, before every induction for a brachycephalic breed, just to know that you have to be prepared uh, to potentially get stuff out of there if it starts to happen. Absolutely. I think that's a great idea. So then after that, I would say that my next thing I look for in these guys is I want to try to minimize their anxiety in the cage and even just with handling of trying to get an IV catheter and everything. So I like to consider anxiolytics like trazodone, gabapentin, maybe some ACE or some TORB when they come in just so that they're sitting in their cage and they're just chill and they're not trying too hard to breathe. They're not panicking. They're not distressed because again, I don't want to create a situation where they go into a respiratory arrest where I'm not ready to manage that at that same time. Now, on the other side of that card, is there is there the risk of potentially sedating these dogs too much uh, and then potentially not watching them? You know, let's say you give a, a high dose of a, a domator or something and all of a sudden you come back 20 minutes later and, and this dog is flat out in its cage. And, you know, is there a higher risk of complications or of, of aspiration because, you know, this dog can't breathe that well uh, and now is so sedate uh, mm-hmm. that they've potentially aspirated. Absolutely. And I would say that the typical anxiolytics like ACE, like gabapentin, like trazodone that we have for these guys, I feel like it never works as well as I really want it to. Sometimes with a really high dose of gabapentin, they just look like they're sleeping. Um, but I agree with you that a drug like dexmedetomidine, dextomator, might have be a little too potent because one of the important parts of dexmedetomidine is that it actually has a lot of muscle relaxation. And so when these dogs really give into their dexmed sedation, also their muscles kind of relax and all of that, all right, hold my airway open, hold my airway open, hold my airway open that they think about, that goes away. Their muscles kind of relax onto each other. And then, yeah, when you're not looking at them because you're trying to go about your day, either doing other patients or doing other treatments, then they can essentially have a respiratory obstruction. And they're not really panicked about it and showing you because they're super sedate. So that can be definitely a problem. So with that, I think as an also important note, I don't like putting these dogs in the back of the wards where no one's really going to be walking by them. So especially before, well, actually the entire time of their hospitalization, I make it a point to kind of keep them in a highly visible area in the surgery prep area where there's probably 15 people walking around keeping an eye on these dogs. And then after surgery, they end up going to the ICU just so they can be heavily monitored because these guys can, I don't know, flop over at any time. I think of utmost importance, my 
biggest goal or my highest priority is that I want to reduce the risk of airway obstruction because the risk of respiratory arrest can be so real for this patient population. So I consider that our high risk times for airway obstruction is after pre-med, like we just kind of talked about with the dexmedetomidine, anytime when you give them a super sedative that causes muscle relaxation, but also on the back end during extubation and during that recovery phase when you're now removing that perfect trachea that they've always dreamed of. Hmm. And now they have to kind of go back to doing it on their own. So the combination of our sedation drugs and our anesthetics as they're wearing off or coming on board can come with muscle relaxation, but then also the lack of awareness. So like I was saying before, where they are always thinking about airway open, airway open, airway open, as soon as that kind of goes away, then maybe that can be a problem for them. So, and I always underline this on all of my anesthesia protocols with the group where I say, prepare to intubate the moment you sedate them, meaning have your endotracheal tubes pulled out, have your laryngoscope pulled out, have your induction drugs, have every step ready before you go to do your IM pre-med. Some actually would say that maybe you should try to place your IV catheter without a pre-medication drug because that way at the time of this muscle relaxation phase, you already have IV access, you can intervene, propofol, intubate, and move on. Although a lot of these dogs actually get so stressed out when you're fighting to get the catheter because we talk about chunk leg, it can be impossible and you have to try five, six times on a bad day. And so, and that restraint can actually cause its own problem. So that balance of do I, I am pre-med, place a catheter versus place a catheter, IV pre-med and then induce is really personal choice. Yeah. And I will say some dogs will allow you to kind of get away with it. It sounds like what you're saying is that the ideal situation is to get a catheter in before any kind of sedation goes on board. Uh, But uh, sometimes that's just not realistic. Yeah, exactly. Especially if they're the flailers. I think sometimes the trazodone gabapentin before even getting started or before them walking in will mellow them out enough that it will allow you to get an IV catheter in without sedation. But sometimes even still, these dogs are so nervous about their own airway. I mean, think about that. Like at any moment, I can't breathe and I'm going to die. That would cause me panic at all times. And so then as you're holding them and restraining them and poking them, they still flail. So sometimes they just need an IM pre-med. It is what it is. But from the moment that happens, we're just going to be prepared and have intubation, induction supplies ready to roll so that we don't get you know caught with our pants down. Into a crisis situation. Absolutely. And then that goes for extubation as well. When you roll that dog out of the OR and you're waiting for them to recover and extubate, you should have a full set of induction materials or re-induction materials. That means more propofol or alfaxalone or whichever you're using, but more induction drug. You have a laryngoscope ready, have multiple endotracheal tubes because let's say you were able to get a size seven before, but now you have some airway irritation from intubation. Some swelling. Some swelling, and now you can only get a six. And those moments when you decide to re-intubate them on the recovery side, they're in a panic. You're in a panic. This is not the ideal situation. So having a tube that you know is small enough that it will create a patent hole for that dog to breathe, even if it's a little straw, is sometimes better than nothing. Do you ever consider extubating these dogs potentially with the cuff inflated or, or partially inflated if you know that there was some regurge at some point throughout your procedure and you're concerned uh, that you know when you deflate your cuff and pull that tube that some of that, that regurge or that liquid's going to get down there? Do you ever consider pulling the tube if you're uh, still partially a, a little inflated? So I do, but I think it's because 
I know that when I'm inflating the cuff in the very beginning from induction, I know that I'm inflating the cuff just to a, a point where I can hear air passing through at 22 centimeters of water, right. but is holding a seal at 19 or 20. Okay. And because I'm, I know I'm not overinflating my cuff because I'm doing it very much deliberately, mm-hmm. I know that I'm, I won't be causing pressure necrosis on the inside of the trachea. So if I do decide to pull the tube inflated to kind of squeegee out any regurgs that the dog may have aspirated, I feel comfortable doing so. The whole partially inflated thing is a little bit of a soapbox of mine because what's the point of partially deflating, allowing some cracks, allowing the regurgs to slip by, and then still causing tracheal damage? I think about it in two situations. If I know that no regurge happened or I feel fairly comfortable knowing no regurge happened in any dog's procedure, then I will deflate the cuff kind of as it's taught. But if I saw that there was regurge and I was suctioning and I was working on things and I feel like there's a really high risk of aspiration, even despite my best efforts, I tend to actually pull that cuff inflated Mm -hmm. because I, again, I want to squeegee out the regurge. And at that point, aspiration is of a higher risk than even some mild tracheitis. Okay. But it is a little bit of a judgment call. And again, I only feel comfortable doing so because I know I did not overinflate from the very beginning. So it sounds like it comes down to being disciplined on your initial intubation and your initial inflation of that cuff to make sure that you're doing it properly. So that way you know down the road if you have to pull that cuff or pull that tube still inflated, uh, you know you're not going to cause undue trauma. Absolutely. And... I think sometimes some people just inflate the cuff blindly right? and without trying to check that, yes, it holds at 20, leaks at 21. And that is that is the gold standard. Not everyone does that. So maintaining that airway is, is hypercritically important in these yeah. brachycephalic braids. Yes, absolutely. And so then also with extubation, we want to make sure that they are what we call like maximally aware so that they, at the time when you remove that breathing straw from them that they love, that they are focused enough to say, oh, yeah, 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 I can take over this job. Yeah, so in your normal dogs, you know, you wait for them to swallow maybe once or twice, and, you know, maybe they're not looking right at you, maybe they're not picking their head up a whole ton, but, you know, you if they've swallowed and you feel comfortable that they can maintain their airway, that you can pull your tube. It sounds like with the brachies, you really want them to be alert and awake enough uh, that you are positive that they are swallowing and that they can maintain that airway. You know, you want them looking at you. You want them moving their head around. Uh, you want to be super, super confident that they are uh, alert enough. Yeah, absolutely. That and I'm, I think there's always that token story of every clinic where the Frenchie woke up from anesthesia and literally was walking around the prep area floor with the tube in with the tube being like this is great yeah why have we done this before absolutely <laughs> the most oxygen it's ever had absolutely yeah it's the best part of their life right so um but you almost want them as much to that effect really until they are rejecting the tube is is there any kind of a risk of you waiting too long other than them potentially starting to, to chew on the tube it, you know it yeah. seems like that's really the greatest risk that you're facing yeah exactly although some a lot of these just because they're underbite is so bad. <laughs> Usually they're not going to get too far, even if they are trying to chew the tube. I did have one time have a dog, a normal faced dog yeah. that woke up under anesthesia. I was not running it, but it was uh, one of the technicians woke up under anesthesia upside down, chomped down the tube and cut the tube in half and the temperature probe, the esophageal temperature probe, snapped both of those in half. And we had to go 
and retrieve. So that's a technician's worst nightmare. It is. The moral of the story is always have more propofol just in case. Absolutely. (laughs) So I guess the last part of my goal list or one last token that I try to think about for management strategies is I like to pre-auctionate these guys if they will tolerate it. And by that, I mean not just by putting the hose of the of the rebreathing circuit in front of their face, mm-hmm. but I mean with an actual cone or that face mask. And the difference being that, you know, there was this study that was done, I think it, was, it might not even be fully published, but it was a poster presentation I saw at a conference where they measured the inspired auction percent in dogs with having five minutes of just having the hose put in front of their nose versus having a face mask. And the hose in front of the nose only got like 25 to 30% oxygen, but the face mask actually got almost closer to 100%. Hmm. And because of that, when the dogs went apneic with propofol, with the dogs that only had the hose to the nose, actually sounds kind of cool, hose to the nose, they started to desaturate on their pulse ox at one minute, but the dogs that had the face mask and were up to 100% for that three to five minute pre-oxygenation time, mm-hmm. when they went apneic, they could survive for up to six minutes before they started to desaturate. So maybe when you're you're getting your animal ready to intubate, maybe you're still setting some stuff up, you're setting your tubes or, or whatnot, you know, your, your pulse ox, have your assistant, you know, kind of standing there with with the cone, with the cone in front of the dog in front of the dog for at, at least a few minutes obviously yep. the longer the better um, yeah and I, I like to call it the astronaut helmet especially for like cats and things where you don't you know you don't just have to put it in front of their mouth and nose you can sometimes put the whole head in it and then they're like oh this is kind of cool I can look through it and it doesn't always freak them out now if it is causing the dog more anxiety Again, you don't want these bulldogs becoming flailers because you are insisting on the face mask and it's freaking them out. You will take your oxygen, right? Yeah, exactly. It's not worth forcing it if they are really not want to have any part of it, especially if it's when you are just trying to get IV access or you haven't yet pre-medded them because you're going to try and do IV catheter placement without sedation. So yes, ideally they are pre-oxygenated as much as we can and we do it with a cone, but it's not necessarily at the detriment to the patient as well. Right. Lastly, let's talk about drugs. That is usually what people are looking for when they come to the anesthesiologist asking for suggestions. So like we said, choosing IV or an IM pre-med, I think really has to do with your patient itself and how stressed out they are with restraint. And if they get super stressed out, then we just consider an IM pre-med or some kind of oral anxiolytics before we get started. But generally speaking, the drug selection for these dogs is pretty open and is usually governed by other factors. Like, do they have a heart murmur? Are they diabetic? Do they have liver or kidney disease? Any one of those other issues is probably going to have a greater impact on your drug selection. But generally speaking, we want to make sure that we're avoiding drugs that we know cause nausea. I mentioned morphine and hydromorphone earlier. Uh, Sometimes we just start with butorphanol Mm. because we know it has actually an anti-emetic effect. And then we can always supplement in a pain control like methadone or fentanyl later on for the actual procedure. Another big thing is that you do not want a prolonged induction time. So a true ketamine induction is probably actually inappropriate for this breed or these types of dogs. And so I tend to go for an alfaxalone or propofol induction, which I just know is a lot more rapid because ketamine and telazole kind of take 60 to 90 seconds to truly kick in. 
the benefit of them being that they actually do breathe better and they actually might retain some laryngeal function. However, that it's a long time from you taking away consciousness to them accepting an endotracheal tube. And then that time an obstruction can occur or regurgent aspiration can occur, a lot of things. So instead we want something that's a lot more rapid acting. So, you know, in the neurology department, we see quite a, uh, a bit of French bulldogs, uh, thanks to their, their backs. So we actually have a specific, what we call brachycephalic protocol. If you can't see me, I'm using air quotes. Uh, but it's, you know, it's a specific anesthetic protocol that we have for brachies. Uh, the first thing that we do is almost as soon as they come in the door, we get uh, Serenia on board and Reglan on board. And that's just, again, to try to prevent as much regurge or... Um, or vomiting as, as possible down the road. Yeah, and we tend to use a pretty high dose of Reglan. We use 0.5 mg per keg sub-Q. And sometimes we do consider running them as a CRI if they're going to be hospitalized for a while. Mm-hmm. But I think in the short-term anesthesia timing, I think putting Reglan in your fluid bag and then worrying about bolusing it is going to be an issue. So we tend to do just kind of a higher dose sub-Q, and hopefully that kicks in well enough for our case. Yeah, and it is it is a case by case basis. You know, if we if we've had uh, regurge during uh, a procedure or, or or you know during the surgery, then we'll consider a CRI afterwards. But initially, we do get that you know that half meg per kg sub Q dose on board. Um, and then again, yeah, we you know we'll use an IM or, or an IV uh, pre med uh, based on other factors, but. Uh, you know, we try to avoid uh, a situation where if we pre-med them and all of a sudden we get pulled away for 10 or 15 minutes that, you know, we feel confident that they're not just going to be flat out in their cage. I think this is a great time to actually talk about one of the cases that we did recently as an example for kind of all these principles that we've been kind of discussing. So the case I want to bring up is his name is Norman. Norman is a ridiculously cute 11-month-old male English bulldog. And he presented for us to us back in 2019 mm. for having a severe corneal ulcer that actually led to a corneal graft. And then after that, he actually had entropion surgery at one point after the graft had healed and then actually had to repair where they had to redo the entropion surgery. And then I think he even came in for a third time. I kid you not. Ouch. This dog has been... I mean, I feel like entropion is another token brachycephalic problem. It's a whole nother conversation. And any time that you would actually put your hands on Norman, he would freak out, flail, alligator roll, and just decide no. And so I think I actually got involved with him when he first presented and they were trying to get an IV catheter in him, I believe in the ER. And they were having a really hard time. And I think they were on their seventh attempt to get IV access. And he has such thick legs you can't see anything. You can't tape anything in. It was really a problem. So we ended up kind of putting a pause on everything. We gave him some gabapentin and trazodone orally, let that kick in for about 30 minutes. Then we gave him some ACE, I believe IM. And that was enough. I believe it was only like 0.02 mg per kg IM. And between those three drugs, we were able to get him calm enough that he let us place an IV catheter. Although I believe we had to essentially create a butterfly with the tape and suture it in place because I think at that point we were in, in a medial saphenous that might as well have been ephemeral. Then once we were able to get 
our IV catheter in and everyone was calm. We did pre-medicate him with butorphanol and dexmedetomidine IV. And we allowed that to have a kick in about five to six minutes before we tried to do anything with him to kind of get our maximum bang for our buck with that pre-med. And in the time, he was calm enough that we were able to pre-oxygenate him with our face mask. And we had several, we had three different endotracheal tube sizes pulled out. And then even though he was 27 kilograms, we only got a size six and a half tube in him because he had the tiniest of tracheas. And so we induced him with alfaxalone, which went very smoothly. We provided methadone for his surgical pain relief intraoperatively. And we probably could have used that as our pre-med as well, although I believe there was enough of a prep time that the delay between the butorphanol and the methadone was about 25, 30 minutes as the torb is starting to wear off. And that worked actually really nicely for his surgery. And then on recovery, we essentially waited around. I think he recovered very slowly from my notes. It was about 25 minutes where we sat there. We let him slowly come out of his anesthesia and then when he was almost playing the tennis match going back and forth looking at us and he swallowed several times and really actually started to jump off the table we decided all right I think we can pull our tube and we were able to pull our tube and we had a very successful recovery for him Norman Norman but he's so cute it's almost worth the struggle that's all that matters he is and um in the case that that actually went poorly, it's always good to have our backup plan. So what do you do if on extubation, this doesn't work out? So like we said before, we always have additional induction drugs pulled up and additional tubes and additional laryngoscope and our air syringe in case we have to do a rapid intubation again. Then I usually try to give them another five or 10 minutes to let that that second or that re-induction dose of propofol to kind of wear off. And hopefully at this point, they've breathed off more isoflurane, so they're more aware. And we try to extubate them again when they're at about that same level of awareness. And then if they fail that extubation attempts two or three times, then, well, usually we call ICU Hmm. in the criticalist because I say, I have to move on to other procedures. I can't sit here for four hours trying to extubate this one dog. But as a group, we tend to then give them a dose of uh, DEX-SP, which is a steroid, usually about 0.1 or 0.2 mg per kg to help reduce any kind of airway swelling. And sometimes we consider it nebulizing them with epinephrine, again, to get some of that laryngeal swelling down. And that we find that tends to help. And usually with some time, they're able to extubate later without much of an issue. So how often do you see, uh, a, you know, we'll say a failed extubation turn into what we call, a, again, a quote-unquote table pet? where they then have to stay intubated, wait for some of that swelling to to decrease and go down until you're able to try again. In my experience, about only 5 to 10% of my brachycephalics end up as table pets. And again, usually it's just that they just need a little bit more time. And so we put them with the critical care team just to kind of manage their, their recovery. Uh, another one of the things I really like to do is what I call Frenchy face tape, where sometimes it's just their really big, thick tongue is in the way. And I essentially use old rolls of white tape that are mostly empty. I have a little bin that I like the ones that you kind of want to throw away, but there's just a little bit of tape left. Yeah. I keep those in a bin I've called Frenchy face tape. And then when I have a brachycephalic, I will actually put that kind of squeeze it into a 
like in a little ellipse. Like I kind of squeeze the, the circle to squish it down and I stick it between their canines so it opens their mouth a little bit. And then that allows me to pull the tongue kind of forward out of their face. And then by the time they're ready to spit the Frenchie face tape out of their mouth, then they're actually totally fine. And so usually I think that works for 80% of them. I would say 10%, 15% maybe need to get reintubated a second time. And then of those, maybe a third of them fail. So when you're, when you're getting ready to extubate, uh, what's going through your mind as far as when you're ready to potentially reverse some of your drugs? You know, at what point do you decide, all right, I'm going to reverse my Domator or I'm going to try to reverse my Benzo or my opioid? You know, what, what is making you make that decision to reverse a drug? I tend to reach for my reversals essentially when they have failed extubation two times or so, or if they're just taking a really long time to do so. I think I've probably run into it mostly with the neuro pets that tend to also have neurological disease. And so they seem to be much more sedate from their drugs, or if they were anesthetized for a really long time. Um, There was actually one with, with one of the techs in the neuro department where they had a Frenchie that stayed asleep in the surgical prep area on, well, at first it was on auction for a while. Um, when I say a while, I mean two hours. And then we disconnect the oxygen and the French was just breathing room air for another two and a half hours. And the poor, I see, well, the poor technician was literally just stuck there recording anesthesia parameters every five minutes for literally four hours while she waited for this dog to show some sign of life. I mean, that dog was really enjoying Love the tube. Love the tube. And then I think we actually realized he got such an a way overdose of trazodone, like a like a three to five times dose of trazodone. So it's actually shocking that this dog wasn't showing signs of serotonin syndrome. And I remember talking to the criticalist about this. But that dog was so mellow yeah. that never felt never felt the need to swallow. Right. And then I think after four or five hours, we've reversed every drug. We've done everything that we can do. And then he just popped up and the dog ended up doing fine. And I think we went over the dosing with the owners so that the dog only got like one tab of trazodone and not 10. Yeah, whatever he got. Yeah. But it was it was definitely a moment. Well, I guess that essentially wraps us up for talking about brachycephalics today. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to Untangling the Lines. We just set up a new Twitter account so that you can reach out to us and let us know what you love, what you want to hear, or what we could do better with. And our handle is at Untangling Lines, and it's a little picture of a corgi, so you'll know that you found us. And I guess that's it, and we will talk to you soon. All right, bye.